Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The factory in San Antonio, Texas was large and an institution across the state. Everyone knew about it. Everyone had seen it. Many of the locals worked there or had relatives who worked there. And at its peak, it houses over 1,000 employees. That's because between 1965 and 1997, millions of pairs of Levi's, the most famous jeans in the world, were manufactured in this factory. Stitch, seam, ship, repeat. One unassuming and smallish pair of Levi jeans jerked along the finishing belt, crisp, new, and ready to be shipped to one of the many outlets across America. Two weeks later, a young woman would happily pick up the pair off the rack and head to the counter, delighted with her purchase, which she'd been saving up for for a while. The next day, she wore them for the first time, feeling empowered as she eyed the fit in the mirror. Those jeans would be the last trousers she'd ever wear, and their fabric would ultimately provide the answer to a decades-old unsolved murder. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander, I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we are going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, Everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, The Levi Jeans. On October the 13th, 1974, 
Two calls came into Stanford Police Station within three hours of each other. The first call was received at 3am. A frantic voice informed the call handler that his wife was missing. That voice belonged to Bruce Perry. His wife, Arliss, hadn't been seen since the night before. They'd had an argument. Over something silly, Bruce said, their car's tyre pressure. But it was unlike her not to come home. The next call came in from a security officer on duty at Stanford University campus, one of California's, indeed the country's, most prestigious educational institutions. It rang through at around 6am, in the half-darkness of the morning. With almost crude detachment, the voice on the other end of the line uttered four words. We've got a stiff. The two calls would forever be connected. Stanford University Memorial Church was known to everyone on campus. It was built during the American Renaissance, boasting extensive mosaic work and ornate stained glass windows. Standing imposingly in the main quadrant, it was often referred to as the university's crown jewel. As detectives entered the church, beneath the church's north facade, their footsteps echoing up to the high vaulted ceilings, they couldn't help but be momentarily awestruck by the impressive space. Their work rarely brought them to places like this. With the sun now rising in the sky outside and beginning to streak in through the windows, the detectives strode purposefully towards the altar. As they reached the transept, the place where the widest point of the church intersects its vertical length, like the centre of a cross, they saw exactly what had brought them here, exactly what had prompted a campus security officer to call Stanford Police Station. To the detective's right, a body lay prone on the floor, the body of a young girl. She had her hands folded, almost angelically, across her chest, and she was naked from the waist down. Jutting fearsomely from the back of her skull was an ice pick, and blood from the wound pooled around her on the floor, staining her light hair. Her neck bore marks from hands previously wrapped around it, a one-metre-long candle, presumably taken from the altar, lay between her breasts. And, to the detective's horror, another had been placed between her legs, inside her. Then there was the woman's blue Levi jeans, folded in the shape of a diamond and laid across the lower part of the young girl's legs. Next to her body was a small pillow, the kind which worshippers used to kneel there was clear evidence of semen on its fabric. It didn't take a seasoned detective to establish the motive for this crime. It was truly a gruesome scene, emphasised by the juxtaposition of its setting, this peaceful, sacred place. And, based on the missing persons report filed in the early hours of that morning, officers were fairly certain they knew who this body belonged to. At around 1am, Bruce Perry had called the station to report his wife missing. 
Bruce said he'd last seen her as she walked up the steps and into Stanford University Memorial Church. So it wasn't a stretch to deduce that this was the body of Bruce Perry's missing wife, 19-year-old Arliss Perry. So just what had happened to this young girl within these hallowed walls? The name of the security guard who had found Arliss's body in the church that morning was Stephen Crawford. And as detectives secured the crime scene, bagging evidence and preparing to transport Arliss to the morgue, Stephen waited outside the church ready to be questioned. Stephen had been a Stanford police officer himself many years previously, so he was familiar with the protocol. He knew all the pertinent details the detectives assigned to this case would need to know and would soon ask him. In his mind, he painstakingly went over the events of that morning, ready to relay them. Stephen recalled that at approximately 11.50 the previous night, the 12th of October, he'd seen a young woman. The woman whose body was now being processed for post-mortem, walking into the church. On the steps, she'd crossed paths with two others who were exiting the church at that moment. He remembered that he'd stepped aside to let them pass. Stephen told detectives that not long after the woman arrived at the church, he took a quick look around, as he did every night, and found it vacant. He'd presumed the woman he'd seen entering had left, but, just in case, he shouted that he was about to lock up, and that any stragglers should wrap up their business and leave. His words echoed around the building's cavernous interior, but no one answered. Stephen approximated it was around ten minutes past midnight as the locks clanked shut on the church's heavy doors. After that, in the brutal, cold and under the cover of darkness, Stephen made his usual patrol around campus. As well as the other university buildings, Stephen told detectives he made regular checks on the church every couple of hours. Each time, nothing was amiss. The doors he'd locked earlier remained so, and he didn't see anyone loitering around the church. According to Stephen, it was business as usual. A perfectly average night. That was until his final visit to the church in the early hours of the morning, around 5.45am. On this occasion, Stephen planned to open the doors for any early worshippers who wished to come inside. He unlocked the front door first and walked around to the west side of the building. To his surprise, he found this door already unlocked. In fact, it looked like it had been forced from the inside. But how could that be? Had someone been left inside? Had he made an error and left someone with no choice but to break themselves free of the church? Confused, he entered the building to see if he could figure out what had happened. Inside, the scenario was far worse than he could ever imagine. Just half a mile away, in parallel to Stephen's evening, Bruce Perry was pacing the floor of his home. His anxiety had been increasing with every minute that had passed. In fact, possibly just missing Stephen Crawford as he locked up, Bruce had jogged back to where he'd last seen his wife on the steps of the church. He wanted to make amends over their pointless argument, 
which had been over something so silly. Car tyre pressure, in fact. Arliss had asked to go and gather her thoughts and calm down in the solace of the church. She was a devout Christian, so the church was always her place to go of peace and reflection. But Bruce wanted Arliss to come home now, back into the warmth and into his arms. He wanted to make amends. He didn't care about who was right about the car tyre pressure. But as he walked around the church's perimeter, at around 12.20, he saw no sign of his wife. As she'd only been living in the area for a few weeks and hadn't made any friends yet, he knew it was unlikely that she would have gone visiting anyone. And as he walked back to their apartment, he held out hope she'd turned up in his absence. Maybe she was sat there now with a hot drink, or perhaps had climbed into bed. He was crushed to find that this was not the case. As three o'clock approached and Arliss still hadn't reappeared, Bruce decided to call the police to report her missing. Officers were dispatched to check the outside of the church and nearby campus, stamping their feet against the cold as they walked around the area. But just like Bruce, they found nothing suspicious or out of place. That was until the two parallel timelines of Bruce Perry and Stephen Crawford collided in the most tragic of ways with the discovery of Arliss's body. Until a murder victim is identified by the authorities, they're often referred to as a John or Jane Doe, their identity a blank slate that must be filled in piece by piece to figure out why they might have met their end in such a way. Santa Clara County PD worked quickly to establish exactly who Arliss Perry was. Maybe the clues to her death lay in her past, her associates or even her hobbies. Painstakingly, they began to fill in the blanks. Arliss Perry was born Arliss K. Dykmer on February 22, 1955 in Bismarck, North Dakota over 1,500 miles from where our story began. Arliss, a devout Christian known for her sunny, trusting disposition, was a homebird. She loved her family and the town she was born in, and she was a person who looked inward rather than outwards, preferring safety and comfort to adventures new. Her family was her top priority, as was the man she loved, Bruce Perry, who she went to high school with. So when Bruce, a year older than Arliss, gained a place at Stanford University in California, there was no question about whether she'd wait for him, or whether their love would prevail. The pair weathered the long distance well, and the year passed quickly. Arliss spent her year away from Bruce spreading the gospel of Christ to non-believers, and living a devout, humble life, counting the days until they'd be reunited. And when that day arrived... Immediately after Arliss graduated, the couple wasted no time. They got married. Arliss packed her modest belongings and set off for Quillen Hall, one of the residences located in Escondido Village, part of Stanford University's campus, which was to become her new home. Perhaps predictably, the adjustment to her new life and new home did not come easily to Arliss. She was lonely. All the letters she wrote to her friends back home remarked how different life was. 
and how little she saw Bruce with him working so hard. On the night of October 12th, Arliss had wanted to mail some such letters and she and Bruce had taken this as an opportunity to stroll around the campus grounds together. During their walk, the couple got into a small argument about their car, a squabble about the tyres. Nothing at all serious, Bruce would later assure detectives. But it was already close to midnight when Arliss told her husband that she wanted some time to herself to calm down and that she'd like to go over to the Stamford Memorial Church to pray. From what detectives quickly gathered, Arliss did not seem like the kind of person to have enemies or quarrels. Far from it, she was a kind, sweet girl. Detectives needed to figure out exactly what had happened to her. Was this crime planned or spontaneous? And who exactly was behind it? Based on preliminary investigations, authorities considered the idea that Arliss's murder was a premeditated attack. The use of a weapon, an ice pick, was hardly something to be found lying around in the church or obtained circumstantially. Why would someone walk into a church carrying an ice pick at midnight? Had someone been watching Arliss while she took her walks around campus? Had they armed themselves ready to attack her specifically or anybody that they encountered walking alone? This theory was given further weight by a man spotted entering the church not long after Arliss. Witnesses described him as looking no more than 25 years old with sandy blonde hair, wearing a short-sleeved blue t-shirt and standing at a height of around 5 foot 10. Was he Arliss's attacker or just a man seeking solace in the church? Detectives put a call out for this gentleman or anyone with information leading to his identification to come forward. This man became of even more significant interest after something which happened on the day of Arliss's funeral. One of Arliss's co-workers was startled to meet Bruce on that sad day. She was surprised by his appearance. He didn't look like she expected him to. The day before Arliss's murder, this co-worker had seen Arliss talking heatedly to a young man in his early 20s, a man this co-worker supposed to be Arliss's husband, Bruce. They certainly seemed to know each other well. Arliss had seemed shaken and upset when the young man left. And since Arliss had only been at her job for just a very short time, her new co-workers assumed the person must have been her husband. But now, on the day of the funeral, it became very clear it was not. So who was the man Arliss had been seen talking to? The one who had left her so upset? Was it the same man who'd entered the church behind her on the night of her murder? The co-worker's description certainly seemed very similar to the man police were already looking to find. But no such man ever came forward or was ever found. The only person not identified from the 12 people in and around the church on the night of the 12th and morning of the 13th of October. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improves. Definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit juvederm.com. That's J U V E D E R M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising discoloration or itching there's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities blindness stroke temporary scabs or scarring talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As is common practice in murder investigations, police focus their attention on the last people to have seen the victims. In this case, Arliss's husband, Bruce, and the man who found her, security guard Stephen Crawford. Bruce was already a person of suspicion, having admitted to arguing with his wife just hours before her death, and despite Bruce's protestations that the confrontation with his wife was benign, police had to consider the possibility that it was motive for murder. Was Bruce so frustrated by his wife's difficulty adjusting to her new life with him that he'd resort to such violent actions? Investigating detectives were sceptical. The husband's grief and heartbreak seemed entirely sincere, and the DNA found at the crime scene, on the pillow and on Arliss's jeans, was not a match for Bruce's. Taking into account the lack of physical evidence tying him to the scene, coupled with his good character, police felt satisfied that Bruce was not Arliss's murderer, but rather a victim by extension. Then, there was security officer Stephen Crawford to consider. After all, he'd been the first man on the scene. But he'd been a serving police officer, and therefore seen as unlikely to commit such a terrible crime. In their eyes, he was, without a doubt, an upstanding member of the community, and just like Bruce Perry, his DNA wasn't a definitive match to anything recovered from the crime scene. Outside the most obvious suspects, police had to consider the circumstances in which her body had been found, which were unusual, to say the least. Did Arliss's discovery in a church, how her body had been arranged in such strange positions, for example, hold any clues as to the motivation of her murderer? While the authorities tried to keep the specifics of Arliss's brutal murder under wraps, predictably, the details began to spread around the campus like wildfire, fueled by rumour and speculation. 
For students at Stanford University, it was terrifying to think someone capable of such atrocities might walk among them. Sensing such frenzied local interest, Arliss's murder was constantly in print across all Californian newspapers, particularly when a new theory emerged and began to gain traction. The theory that Arliss had been murdered by a satanic cult in a ritualistic sacrifice, for instance. This was the early 1970s, the years following the havoc and horror of the Manson family murders. Killer cults were rooted in the public consciousness. Around this time, one prominent religious group was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, or just the Process for short. The Process, which hailed from London, had evolved across the world and were increasingly becoming known for their strong links to Satanism. They'd been linked to Charles Manson himself, and legend had it ritualistic murders of dogs were commonplace among Process members. In the UK, the Process were known to have opened a library and an all-night coffee shop called Satan's Cavern. On the face of it, it seemed like unsubstantiated folklore, fueled by the fears of the time. But when it came to Arliss Perry's murder... It wasn't just the strong ritualistic elements of the crime scene that led police down this unusual line of inquiry. Detectives explored the possibility that, while still living in Bismarck, Arliss had supposedly attempted to recruit some members of the process and convert them to her church. This would undoubtedly have been inadvertent. Arliss would never have sought out trouble. But it was possible that her murder was retaliation for this misstep. The press certainly picked up on the idea that members of the process had stalked and followed Arliss out to California to take their revenge. Later, when objects were stolen from Arliss's grave, this added more speculation to the theory of Satanism and ritual. But it remained just that, a theory, with police unable to link anyone from the process to Arliss or her death. Along the same dark trajectory as satanic cults, a well-known serial killer was also being considered as Arliss's murderer, both by the police and by the public. David Berkowitz, better known as the Son of Sam, was, at the time of interest, languishing in Sullivan Correctional Facility, a maximum security campus in New York, the state in which Berkowitz grew up. Using a 44 Special Caliber Bulldog revolver, Berkowitz was known for murdering six people and wounding seven others, and for the manhunt that followed, the biggest in the city's history. During his year-long reign of terror, Berkowitz wrote letters which ended up being published in the press. Letters which openly mocked law enforcement and their inadequate attempts to catch him. Though arrested he eventually was, on August the 10th, 1977, three years after Arliss's brutal murder. Berkowitz confessed to all of them, initially claiming to have been obeying the orders of a demon manifested in the form of a dog belonging to his neighbour, Sam. On the face of it, Berkowitz's modus operandi didn't match the crime scene in which Arliss was discovered. 
Arliss hadn't been shot, but there was the suggestion of Satanism to consider. And also the keen interest Berkowitz himself seemed to have in Arliss's case, despite it occurring on the opposite side of the country to his home state. In 1979, Berkowitz mailed a book about witchcraft to police in North Dakota. Within its pages, he'd underlined several passages and written a few marginal notes, including the phrase, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked and slain, followed to California, Stanford University. Officers at the correctional facility who closely monitored Berkowitz's letters also discovered increasing mentions of the Perry murder. In some, Berkowitz even suggested he knew the perpetrator and that it was one of his satanic comrades from a cult he claimed to have joined a couple of years before his capture. Over the years, as Arliss Perry's case was examined and re-examined, Berkowitz, latterly an inmate at Attica Correctional Facility, was questioned by officers. But after collective hours being interviewed about his knowledge of the case, detectives had to admit that Berkowitz offered nothing of value to the case. Certainly nothing which could definitively name Arliss's killer. The Arliss Perry case, while discussed by every single newcomer to the university, became just that. A topic of conversation, gossip and folklore. A real-life thriller which, as the years went by, became more distant, as well as more embellished, every time it was retold. The police had no tangible leads. They hadn't for years at this point. Until finally a new suspect came to light. A witness came forward claiming they believed a flautist, someone who used to play their flute in Stanford Memorial Church, in fact, was the real culprit for Arliss's murder. This witness claimed that on the very same night of the murder, they had seen this man playing his flute on the altar, while a young woman lay beneath him with candles burning either side of her, the witness claimed the woman resembled Arliss. They also claimed they knew exactly where the flute player now was. For one of the officers who interviewed the witness, it caused huge excitement. Could this be it? The lead they'd all been waiting for? The statement which would lead them to the murderer? But by his fellow officer, it was treated with scepticism. Why had this witness waited so many years to come forward? How could they now be so sure it was Arliss they'd seen? After all, time does strange things to memory. It all just felt too flimsy. Nevertheless, the lead was followed up. Detectives were dispatched to interview the man the witness had named. He was exonerated completely with an iron-clad alibi. And the case went cold again. That was until 2016. By then, 40-odd years of forensic advancements had taken place since Arliss Perry's murder. In the 1970s, for example, scientists at the Aerospace Corporation, California, developed the method of detecting gunshot residue using scanning electron microscopes. But Arliss Perry had not been shot. 
Blood and semen had both been found at Arliss Perry's murder scene. Physical samples that, in 1974, could only be tested in the most basic of ways. But understanding about DNA as we know it was growing and evolving as the years passed. In Britain, Sir Alec Jeffries developed the first DNA profiling test and in 1986 applied it to identify the killer of two girls and to free an innocent suspect. In 1987, DNA was used for the first time in the US when a man called Tommy Lee Andrews was convicted of a series of sexual assaults. By 1998, the FBI had introduced a DNA database for interstate cooperation, holding the genetic information of any known criminal or from any criminal case in a bid to cross-reference the two. Santa Clara County District Attorney's and Sheriff's Office, or more specifically, Stanford Sheriff Laurie Smith, reopened the case in earnest. As well as re-interviewing everyone connected with the case, once more taking their DNA and fingerprints to eliminate them, she also decided to retest every piece of evidence found at the Arliss Perry murder scene using modern methods of forensic DNA retrieval. And sure enough, a complete DNA profile was obtained from the semen found on the blue Levi's Arliss had worn to the church, the ones that were removed and draped on her body when she was found. That DNA profile matched some other DNA they had on record, that of security officer Stephen Crawford, the last person to see Arliss Perry alive. On June 28, 2016, police arrived at Stephen Crawford's residence at Camden Avenue in San Jose, California, 20 miles from Stanford University. Since leaving Stanford two years after Arliss's murder, Crawford had done very little of note. His only other known run-in with the law came in 1992, when he was arrested for crimes that occurred nearly two decades before, when he was in fact still working at Stanford. Authorities had discovered that the security guard had methodically stolen numerous Native American artefacts, including art objects and sculptures, as well as about 200 rare books from the university's Department of Anthropology and campus libraries. According to court records, Crawford pleaded no contest to a felony charge of receiving stolen property, raised to a felony because the value of the items climbed into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was given a six-month suspended sentence that he fulfilled through a work furlough programme and two years probation. A series of thefts didn't necessarily make Stephen Crawford a homicidal psychopath. They did, however, tarnish the idea of his good moral character, lent to him by his previous stint in law enforcement. But the DNA found on Arliss's genes allowed Sheriff Smith to obtain a search warrant for Stephen Crawford's apartment in South San Jose. As police surrounded the ex-security guard's home, Crawford's neighbours began to look out of their windows or open their doors to ask officers what was going on. As word got out who they were there to arrest, incredulity spread around the apartment block. Crawford hadn't set off any particular alarm bells for those who knew him. His neighbours thought he was a quiet, helpful and normal man. Little did they know the secret he'd been harbouring for 43 years. 
The knocks on the door echoed around the hallway, and in response came a shaky voice. Crawford, now a much older man, said he would open the door after he'd been allowed to get dressed. Detectives initially agreed, but after a few minutes of waiting, officers began to suspect that Crawford was stalling. Perhaps he was destroying evidence. Having obtained a key from the landlord of the block, officers unlocked and opened the door. The sight that greeted them was that of Stephen Crawford sitting on his bed, holding a handgun. Trying to urgently de-escalate the situation, officers backed out of the apartment, imploring Crawford not to do anything rash. Moments later, a gunshot rang out. Stephen Crawford had shot himself in the head. When Santa Clara County Sheriff's deputies searched Crawford's apartment in the aftermath of his suicide, they found some interesting items. These included a torn-off cover of the book The Ultimate Evil, a book about the satanic cult killer Son of Sam that mentions the Perry killing, and what appeared to be a Stanford diploma doctored to have his name on it. There was no record of Crawford ever having graduated from the school. Officers also found a suicide note, dated two years previously, and clearly written after the last time he was interrogated over Arliss's murder. It was the final piece of evidence suggesting that Crawford knew that the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office, working with the District Attorney's Office Cold Case Unit, was now closing in on him after over four decades of eluding arrest. In a press conference, Sheriff Laurie Smith said, I think he might have believed his time was up. Though she also confirmed that Crawford's note did not contain any type of confession or reference anything about Arliss's murder. This was a tragic, anticlimactic conclusion to an even more tragic crime, with Crawford unable to answer questions about Arliss's death or give any peace or closure to her family. But it also begged the question, what else could this murderer hiding in plain sight have been concealing? And speculation simmered over whether he might be responsible for any more of the unsolved murders that plagued Stanford campus in the years surrounding Arliss's death. For someone to commit the kind of crime that Crawford did, psychologists would assert it would be rare for their crimes to start and stop there. Santa Clara County Sheriff Laurie Smith remains, to this day, open to the possibility Crawford had more victims. Police reportedly found serial killer literature in his home, showing a consistent interest in murder. And his background held striking similarities to other infamous serial killers from this time period. Like both the Golden State killer, Joseph D'Angelo, and the BTK strangler, Dennis Rader, Stephen Crawford had been a military veteran. Joseph D'Angelo had been fired from a job in law enforcement due to a shoplifting conviction, and Dennis Rader failed the psychological tests the Wichita PD gave officer candidates. 
Following suit, Stephen Crawford had once been an armed police officer, but his job had been reduced to unarmed security. The Golden State Killer was responsible for the deaths of at least 13 people, likewise the BTK Strangler is known to have claimed the lives of 10 victims. It would stand to reason, therefore, that with the MO he displayed in the Arliss Perry case, Stephen Crawford was unlikely to stop at one murder. Leslie Marie Perloff was a 21-year-old Palo Alto law clerk and a Stanford graduate found strangled in the Californian foothills on February 16, 1973. She was discovered with pantyhose stuffed in her mouth and her skirt pulled up around her waist. On September the 11th the same year, 19-year-old junior David Levine was found stabbed 15 times next to Maya Library. On the 24th of March 1974, the body of 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor, daughter of former Stanford athletic director and football legend Chuck Taylor, was found strangled in a ditch on Sand Hill Road. These cases have never been solved. And while authorities have not drawn any connections between Crawford and these three deaths, and while the former security guard is now deceased, he's not been formally ruled out. Perhaps with further advancements in forensic technology and DNA testing, those cases too will be brought to conclusion. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, 
and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 pounds per month.